We are continuing uh, our uh, six-week series through our values. Um, grow, um, start again. Pursue God, build community, grow people. This is a great chance to really dig into some of the fundamentals behind, underneath uh, our values and to really understand what we're all about. We, do, we, we tend to do this at the start uh, of the year. It's a, it's a great opportunity uh, for us to align together. And so today, uh, last couple of weeks, we've uh, talked about uh, the Pursue God piece and we're moving on um, today to um, think about building community. One of the things that I have often um, found really interesting is the way that people band together in times of disaster, for example. Um, so if there's a flood or an earthquake, the way that that this common experience of being in a disaster like that has this effect of binding people together. Um, my family live in, uh, well, part of my family live in North Queensland and uh, there have been great floods, as many of you probably know, late last year and, uh, you know, a lot of people affected. Uh, it was a pretty disastrous time. But my, um, my sister was telling me, who lives up there, how much the community had band together and people that, you know, never really knew each other or neighbours that never really talked to each other, suddenly everyone's helping each other and they're all getting to know each other. And, and the sense of togetherness in, in the common disaster, I mean, part of that was that they were all sort of trapped together and so they're, you know, sharing resources and food and asking each other. But really, it, it had this amazing effect of binding each other together and now now they've really all got to know each other and there's a real sense of community. And you see that again and again, this, uh, this experience in, in common disaster. It's, I've also uh, noted with, with interest how a lot of, one of the things that war veterans really struggle with uh, after times of conflict is the loneliness compared with the sense of camaraderie that they experienced. Uh, I, I watched a, there's a great uh, World War I documentary called They Shall Not Grow Old. This one, I just, it's amazing, uh, by documentary by Peter Jackson. And um, uh, one of the a comment was made during that of the, uh, the sense of community that the soldiers had. You know, I mean, they're in the mud and in the trenches and it's a terrible, terrible situation. But actually, it's partly because of that terrible situation that they bound together and they found a sense of community there in the mud, you know, uh, knee deep in mud and all the conflict and, and all of the horrific things that they were happening, uh, that were happening around them. And yet, in the midst of that, they found this incredible sense of community, of togetherness, that when the war was over and everyone went back into uh, society, the, a, lot of, a lot of these people really struggled uh, with that. Um, uh, the you know the a lot of the RSL clubs actually started up as a you know effort to try and you know get them back together and to regain some of that sense of camaraderie and, and togetherness. I've it's all I've also noted with interest uh, how um, the, the the sense of 
um, togetherness and community, actually, that the guys at Margany Prison uh, they go into regularly, the sense of community that they have in their common situation and the way that they, uh, the various struggles that, that they're having and um, the way that they support each other. And it's amazing sense of community. I'm thinking, man, these guys do community so well. And the, you know, the mutual support and, and uh, they've just introduced this, this thing called peer mentoring because they recognize that they mentor each other and support each other uh, far better than the professionals do. You know? um, and they're trying to really tap, uh, tap into that. And, uh, and then, uh, of course, think of... Um, uh, Foundation 61 and the sense of community. It's a, Foundation 61 is a recovery community for people with life controlling issues. And, uh, and of course, we all have life controlling issues. I'll talk about that in a moment. And the sense of, you know, in, in that journey of recovery, there's such a sense of community in that because it's, you know, it's a group of people working together uh, in the same situation and uh, with a lot of sort of disaster, trail of disaster behind them, but working them, you know, working out of that and sharing about that and sharing the journey together. And there's an amazing sense of community in that. Um, now, uh, in all of those cases, it's the sense of disaster, it's the predicament that kind of creates the context for people to connect and commune together. Because it's like all of the, the sort of normal, when, when you think, well, what, what, are there, what are the things that were broken there that that enabled these people to find community. Because a lot of those situations are bad situations, but they had the effect of, of breaking things open that normally separate people. So what actually is that that gets broken? And one of the, one of the key things is this um, sense of <clears throat> sort of false identity or, or false dignity, uh, the pride, the, uh, the personas that we adopt. Uh, it's, it's that effort for us to be the people we think we should be or the people that we want to be. And the thing about, you know, times of disaster, a lot of that gets broken and we all find ourselves falling through uh, the, the layers and ending up, and, uh, you know, at the sort of bedrock of the reality of our situation. And there's a sense of togetherness in that. And um, this is... This is really the opportunity that we have as Christians because in a very real sense, we do share a consciousness of a common disaster. And I don't think it's going too far to explain it in that way, that we are in a very real sense, also a recovery community. This is a church is a recovery community. We are a spiritual recovery community and we're all in recovery. There are no, uh, there are no inherently righteous people in a church. We came to Jesus because we weren't, we, because, because we had a problem, because we recognized that we had a problem. We recognized uh, our, our guilt and our, our fundamental brokenness. And so we came to Jesus for forgiveness and for grace, right? Which is God's favor, unearned. That's what binds us together in the first place. But we can forget that can't we? And we can start adopting perhaps Christian personas. Again, the person that we think we should be or that we want to be, but we're actually not. The wonderful thing about grace is that we have God's love and favor and through Jesus Christ, his forgiveness, despite the way that we are. 
right? It's despite the way they are and the way that we are. And the, the, the important thing about that is that it creates a context of acceptance with God. God says, now I accept you, I forgive you, I've paid for your guilt through Jesus Christ. I accept you unconditionally. Now God says, I want to get my hands on you and let's begin a process of transformation. That's where the good stuff happens, right? That's, that's where the Holy Spirit really gets into the deep places of our heart and we experience this journey of transformation. That's where the power is. That's where the movement of the spiritual life is. It's in this transformational journey. But it's all in the context of the fact that we're forgiven and accepted by grace, right? Which makes it safe in a sense. Uh, we, can, we can admit that we've fallen far short. We can admit that we're broken because, there's this, because it, doesn't, it doesn't take away God's favour from us. That's what unites us. The, the idea, and, and it's worth naming this, the idea that, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to, um, let me put it biblically, the notion of universal and fundamental human sinfulness is a very um, unpalatable idea in our culture. And I just want to name that and speak to this for a moment. The, we, Christians often get criticised for this idea. You know, how could we say everyone's, you know, everyone's sinful and that, that human nature is corrupted? And I mean... Um, I, I do feel it's an inescapable consequence of the world that we live in. I don't think anyone is denying that the world is in bad shape, but somehow it's always other people that cause that. It's not me. No, I'm a good person. Everyone else caused that. <laughs> so, so you've got everyone else thinking that everyone else caused this sort of disaster in the world that is the cumulative result of the disaster of the brokenness of human nature. Um, but there's a sense, I think what is being objected to there is when we talk about, you know, the corruption of human nature and human sinfulness, there's this, uh, perhaps, uh, it, that is taken as being somehow demeaning uh, of human beings, that we're, we're being demeaning towards human beings. And I, I want to underscore the fact that it is actually the very opposite to that. It's the very opposite to that. The, the whole idea of human sinfulness is based in the fact, it's based in the, our belief in a very high view of humanity. We have a very high view of humanity. We are children of God. We are absolutely sacred as children of God. We were created to reflect the character of God. We participate, in a sense, in the divine nature, as, as Peter says, um, in his letter. And so there, there is no higher view, I've said this many times before, there's no higher view of humanity than we find in the Bible. And that actually is the origin of the problem because it's easy to say and just kind of um, think that we're going all right if you think that the way that you are is all that you should be. I mean, if we're, just, if we're just another animal kind of roaming the earth, well, okay, fair enough, then I guess there's nothing wrong with us. We're just, uh, well, actually, even then, um, it has been argued, <laughs> you know, even then we do things that probably animals would not do. I mean, collectively, not you, 
course. I don't want to indict anyone here. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, it, it has been pointed out that human beings do things that animals would not even think about doing, right? Uh, um, but nevertheless, you see, if, if that's all we think we are, then there's, we don't expect much of each other, right? And that may seem good, right? That may seem, well, we don't expect much uh, of each other, and so we're just, you know, we don't expect much of ourselves. But there's a problem with that if, there's a problem with that, because it's not what we are. And because we know deep down, and we know when we hug our children, that there is something inherently sacred about human beings. Uh, I have a little staffy dog, and I love my dog. I really love my dog. He's a, you know, he's, he's a great dog, but, but I, I love my children more. Do you understand? And there's a whole difference because there's something, I mean, there's something so inherently sacred in my parental love that I sense in my children. I love, you know, it, my sense of their value is not based on the, the sum of their attributes and achievements. No, we know as parents that there is just something transcendent and sacred about these little creatures that we hold for the first time. Almost to the point, and I can remember first holding my, my first child, and, and there was almost a sense this world is not worthy of this creature. This, the purity and the glory of this creature, the world is not worthy of this creature. I think any parent has had that, had that sense. No, no, we know that we're worth more, and we know that... Uh, we know that there's a sacredness in human beings. And so this really is the origin of this idea that we've fallen short of something. And, um, and so this isn't, this isn't demeaning of human nature. To hold, it actually flows from the fact that we have a very high view, far higher perhaps what, than what any of us can imagine, because in our imaginations, even what we imagine we should be is still probably way below what we actually should be. So our sense of fallenness, of brokenness, flows completely from a very, very high view uh, of human nature. The other positive thing that this view of universal human sinfulness, uh, the, the positive effect that this has or should has, have. And certainly we see this in the origins of the, the, the Christian movement, is it has this levelling effect on human beings. That no one can claim to be inherently better than anyone else because we're all put on the same footing. On the one hand, we were all created children of God and we have all fallen short of that. So there is no real merit. You know, a lot of divisions in society are based on this kind of meritocracy, right? This sense of, um, you know, some people are better than others, depending on, I mean, and, and if we view things in worldly standards, I mean, certainly if we view things by animal standards, you know, survival of the fittest and the strongest and the best and the most beautiful, which tends to be a bit of a default uh, setting, then we have all sorts of different divisions in society and in relationships and some people are perceived to be better than others and the thing about the biblical teaching about universal human sinfulness, it puts us all in the same predicament, right? We're all in the disaster together. 
And this, and I, I know this sounds strange, if I were to ask you, what is it that really unites us together? And you might say, well, well, we all believe in Jesus, right? One Savior, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But let me dig a little bit deeper. What is it that led us to Jesus? What was the actual thing in us, inherent, inherent in us that we had in common for all of our differences that led us to Jesus? And it was our shared human predicament. It was the shared sinfulness, the brokenness. That's what led us. And that really is the thing that continues to draw us to Jesus. So I believe the experience that we see in times of disaster, in recovery communities, in people in the trenches, I believe that we can and we should be having that same experience because we are conscious of a certain disaster that has happened not only around us, but in us. Because as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I think we know that so well, we lose a sense of the disaster involved in that. There is a sense of disaster. And we share in that disaster. It's not just a disaster that's happened around us. It's a disaster that has happened within us. Again, it sounds a little unpalatable. I get that. But remember, we only state this because of this sense of what we should be, because we have this very, very high view of our humanity. How far short? Well, it depends. Uh, how far we've fallen, it depends how high you think we were in the first place. And as I said, the Bible has a very, very high view of humanity. When I uh, became a Christian, I was in my late teens when I became a Christian, you know, initially, uh, you know, one of the I guess the struggles was, you know, with this newfound faith and accept, you know, I was accepted by God and so much joy. One of the struggles was uh, my sense of failing to live up to this beautiful thing that I'd been given. That, that was certainly a, a, a real struggle. And look, um, the, initially it was a lot of the kind of moral, the very obvious moral problems, right? You know, clean up, I'm going to clean up my language a bit and I'm going to treat other people better and I'm going to try not to be so selfish and, you know, not be just driven by selfish ambition. All, you know, kind of, it was the moral stuff for a long time that I kind of focused on. And to be honest, with a bit of self-discipline, with a bit of self-discipline, you can deal with the moral stuff, you know. And, um, but what I discovered as time went on, it was like, um, like having a, a garden where, you know, things, you know, it's pretty modest kind of growth and things are struggling to grow a little bit, and, and, but you're keeping on top and the weeds keep coming up and you keep clipping off the weeds. You know, that's like that sort of self-discipline involved in... Uh, in just living a moral life, 
you know, cutting off the weeds and planting some good stuff and it's all sort of struggling a bit and, 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 and perhaps you get to a point where you think the garden's kind of looking okay, all right, with a bit of effort, self-discipline, I'm on top of the weeds, you know, I'm, I'm watering some good plants here, it looks okay. Um, now, of course, sometimes we can forget that there was like, there was a rainforest there before, right? <laughs> you know? And our sorry little garden is, it's looking, it's, you know, pretty ordinary compared to the rainforest. But the other, and this is the big thing, once, once you start getting down under the earth and you start getting down into the roots of things and you start asking, why do these weeds keep coming up? That's where you get into the deep stuff, right? That's where, that's, that's where you start to realise that there is a deep human problem that's more than just a moral problem. It's a deep spiritual problem. And it's when you get to the deep spiritual problem, you realise that there's stuff there that you, that you can't change just by discipline, that you need a fundamental change of heart. This is the big discovery throughout the Old Testament with God's people discovering that no amount of human effort or self-discipline is, is really going to enable us to be the people that God wants us to be. And so we have, by the time we get to Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, you know, Jeremiah says in seven, uh, Jeremiah 17 verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure, who can understand it? Two things, beyond cure and who can understand it. So this is not something we can fix. This was a very important discovery for me. This is not something that I can just fix with self-discipline, that I need God to do something far bigger and deeper than I can ever do. And, that's, and, and that work is still going on in my life. But very, very important discovery. And the second part of that is that I cannot even understand how knotted up it all is. I've mentioned this very uh, interesting um, book uh, written by a um, psychologist, um, Mark Wallen, called It Didn't Start With You. And it's, it's a book about multi-generational trauma uh, and, and how that's passed down through the generations. How uh, it's, and he's dealing, and he's very conscious of dealing with an idea. It's a very biblical idea. He's not a, a Christian. But uh, he recognises that Traditional societies have always sort of understood this, right? Because we're very individualistic. This is a problem that I have. But he, what he recognises is that a lot, of, a lot of issues that we have are inherited, right? And this is a very theological idea, by the way. Um, the idea of inherited, and I'm, I'm going to refer to brokenness. And there are some people that don't like that because we should just call it what it is, call it sinfulness. But the problem is, is that it's not just the, the it's not, what we do wrong, it's also the wrong that we suffer that has an effect upon us. There's those two elements, right? Uh, it's not only what we do, but what is done to us, right, in life. This is what makes, this is what makes life so complicated. And, it's, and, and I actually think it's important to separate uh, those two things. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm going to persist in talking about brokenness. You understand, I'm just, I like using an ordinary word anyway to describe the breadth of what has gone wrong. But there's this sense that this brokenness is inherited uh, through, and it's interesting that he talks about to the third and fourth generation. And, and again, he's a non-Christian author and he's quoting the Bible saying, look, the Bible shows a consciousness of this principle uh, and that we are the result of, uh, of the things, not only the things that our 
our uh, forefathers suffered, but even the things that our forefathers did. So both victims and perpetrators, uh, he points out, there's a, there's, a, there's a certain level of trauma in both of those things that's, uh, that's passed on. Now, there is no... Um, I'm not going to say anymore because I'm not an expert in that, but one, one of the things that I realised as I was reading, that I was thinking about when I was reading this book is how very, very complicated we are as people. Like, if that's the case, then there are knots there, like, that, like multi-generational knots. And, it, and, and you, can, you can get to this point where you think, oh man, I just despair of myself. That's a good start. That's a really good start. I found that really helpful because, I mean, it comes from the reaction like, oh, if, if, if we're that knotted up and it's multi-generational, I mean, and it's not only, you know, my problems, but the problems that I've inherited. And if I'm that knotted up as a person and that complicated, right, and that dysfunctional and broken, right, I just give up. Great starting point. That starting point changed my life because I realized only God can untie all these knots beyond cure, as, uh, as Jeremiah says. But this is the thing that God loves to do that gets into the deep places of our, of our lives and deals with all of these knots and, and, and starts working in all of these places. And, you know, this is, this is the deep stuff. And you see this recognition in Scripture that there is something... There is something that only God can do here. So, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 36... Um, Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a start heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. There's this sense, something we're not just going to be able to deal with. It's a mo- sure, just moral problems we can maybe, with a bit of self-discipline, and we can stay on top of that, right? But there's a deep, deep spiritual problem that only God can deal with. That's the acknowledgement there. And so Paul says in Ephesians um, chapter 4, he says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's, that's the predicament that we're all in, and we're all in this together. What you see, it's interesting through, uh, again, to take a, a broad view, I think in, in some ways human history matches what happens in our lives individually. What you see, and it's very interesting to trace this in the Bible, um, and, and, and I think we will. I'm really keen, actually, after this series, I really want to get, I feel like we need to root ourselves really deeply in the biblical story. And I, uh, I want to really go there and dig, dig deeply into that um, in, in the future. So we will get into this. But one of the really interesting things is to see from the moment of the fall of humanity 
to see the fragmentation of humanity, like Genesis chapter 3 is where the fall is described, right? The rebellion against God. What happens in chapter 4? Brother, one brother kills the other. Cain, it's a famous story of Cain and Abel, right? It's you start to get this fragmentation. Cain goes off, builds a city, and when it says city, it means fortress, right? Fortress, a fortress, right? Why do you need a fortress with walls? That's what they understand. Because humanity is now pitted against humanity. You get this, so you get this, fragmentation of humanity, but you get this other thing. You get human attempts at false unity, artificial unity. The Tower of Babel, right, was an attempt to achieve sort of artificial unity. We call it civilization. Uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in Scripture, it's like the world system is like a, a way of kind of human way of holding it all together, right, using human power, which invariably, looking at the whole of history, means tyranny. And so there are all of these kind of false, unit, false efforts to, artificial efforts to pull this fragmented humanity together, right? And we see that again and again and again, as in the Tower of Babel, God keeps breaking all human attempts to hold it all together. We see it in the Tower of Babel. God scatters them. You think, hang on, why is God scattering them? Doesn't God want us all be together? And you know, yes, in true unity, but not in a false unity. And we see even back in the book of Daniel, we see predictions of empires are going to come, right? And but God's going to smash them all, right? Every human attempt, and we see that throughout history. One empire after another, artificial attempts at bringing humanity together, every single one of them is smashed, 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 smashed. And God does that, I think, in our lives as well. It's our human attempts to hold it all together. It's the personas that we adopt to convey the fact that, oh, I have it all together. I have it all together. God has a way when we do that and we think we're way better, going way better than we actually are. Doesn't God have a way of breaking that open? Because the personas that we adopt, they don't bind us together, they separate us they become points of comparison with each other. His persona is better than his persona and her persona is, looks way better than hers. It, it divides us. But underneath the persona, we have the real persons, persons who are all sharing the same predicament, the same brokenness at a fundamental level. There may be moral differences between us, maybe you're a bit more disciplined than me, maybe I'm more disciplined than you in the moral sense, but who cares? Because that, like, that, that counts for very, very little. But at the deep, deep spiritual level, we are deeply, deeply broken people. And it makes everything hard, right? It makes everything hard. It makes relationships hard. It makes marriage hard. It makes parenting hard. It makes life hard, right? It's just, it's amazing that it ever even works as well as it does. So we just need to be honest about that because we're a recovery community and we're all sick and we're all getting better. 
One of the, 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 I have this recurring experience as a pastor. I have this wonderful privilege as a pastor of knowing a lot of things about a lot of people. Now, without giving too much away, we're all really broken people. But no one thinks that anyone else is. That's the interesting thing. When I talk to people about areas of brokenness in their lives, they think, why me? Everyone else is going so well. And, I know, and that, now this is the thing. And I hear everyone else saying the same thing. All right, guys, we've got a problem here. <laughs> we've got a problem here, right? Because I know, I know that we're all broken people. I know that. But you all think that everyone else is going really well. So that's a problem. But I'm going to suggest to you that it's an opportunity for us. Here's an opportunity for us to find real community. Because whatever you are dealing with, whatever you are struggling with, whatever area of brokenness you're working through in your life, I guarantee there will be a whole number of other people in this community that are going through the same thing. And we're in the trenches together. We're in the trenches together. And it's messy and it's complicated. But that's, this is the thing that binds us together. We're not wallowing together, by the way. We don't wallow together. We're on a journey of recovery together, right? But a journey of recovery begins with us recognizing where we are. Famously, Jesus said, it is not the help, actually, uh, let me go to, uh, let me get the verse uh, here, Luke 5, verse 30. In verse 30 it says, they asked Jesus, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Of all the people that he could go and commune with, he chooses the most broken people. That's who he, oh, there's a group of really broken people. That's where Jesus goes. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners, they asked. Tax collectors being corrupt, very corrupt officials at that time. Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus communes with broken people. And wherever there is a group of broken people who know that they're broken people, Jesus wants to come to your supper. He wants to come and commune with us, right? It's one of the, one of the, the, the biggest um, perceptions, I think, that people have when they're dealing with, you know, maybe feeling ashamed at their brokenness or whatever's going on in their life is that they feel afraid of what other people will think. Now, let me say this. The irony is if other people judge you or look down upon you, then according to Jesus, and this is go right through the Gospels, they are committing a sin that is a hundred times worse than you by judging you. The harshest words that Jesus ever had to say were to the self-righteous 
who judged other people. That's the irony, right? That's the irony of judging other people. Even, and may I say, that's even when you hear of something that's going wrong in someone's life or you know, there's a bit of a disaster, you think, oh, yeah, that's probably because there's... Even when you think that, that's judgment. That's a problem. That's a big problem. And we've got to stop doing that in order to create an environment that's safe when you find yourself... Because we do that as a bit of a protect, protective thing. Well, that's happened to them probably because of this. You know, we, maybe we think, so that won't happen to me because I'm doing everything right. Let me tell you, as someone that knows a lot of things about a lot of people in the church, it doesn't work like that. We need to be very, very mindful that judging other people and self-righteousness, according to Jesus, is the worst of all sins because you are playing God. Can we agree never ever to do that? Can we agree to strive never to do that? And the reason I'm asking you this is because I believe that one of the things that God wants to do in our community is break through personas and reach people. Our personas will divide us. But when we discover our personhood in the brokenness, in the trenches, in the problems, in the issues... This is a table that Jesus will want to come to. He will want to come to this table. James says in James uh, 5 verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Confess your sins to each other. And this, you know, I mean, obviously there's a little bit of wisdom to adopt here. And, you know, we're not, it's not saying we should just bleed over each other and use other people as a t- tools for your catharsis. And, you know, understand all of that, right? There's a bit of wisdom and discernment here. But there's something wonderful in the right context when people are just honest with each other and share the struggle. It binds us together, folks. And for those people who feel lonely in their struggle, how I long that they would discover. I can't tell them, right? I can't tell them that there are, well, I say generally there are other people in this circumstance, but man, it would be really encouraged for them if they met someone else who actually was willing to admit that they're in that circumstance. Confess your sins to one another. Share your brokenness with one another so we can pray for each other. That's... That's a supper that Jesus wants to come to. He wants to come and be amongst the people that are like that. I'd like us to, to stand together. Thanks, I'll get the musos to come, uh, come up. We're going to share communion together. And communion is, is a wonderful symbol of this very thing because the symbols of communion are symbols of shed blood and broken body. That's what the symbols are. Symbols of shed blood and broken body. And we unite, we are united in our brokenness, right? And yet, the fact that God has made available to us 
His grace in Jesus Christ. And this becomes the thing that unites us. This is the table that we gather around. I'm going to get the, uh, if you guys could just uh, hand that out. What I'd like you to do is just hold on uh, to the elements, hold on to the bread and the cup, and uh, we'll take this uh, together in a moment. This is the table, folks. This is the table where we meet Jesus. This is where we say, I need this. I need this broken body and shed blood because I am broken. I have problems. I got issues that I can't solve. That's why we go to Jesus. So if you just hold on to those elements, as I said, we'll take it together in a moment. But let me pray. Father, Today we confess, Lord God, that we have fallen far short of what we should be, that our lives have fallen far short of what they should be. Lord, we recognise the brokenness, the need in our hearts, in our relationships, in our community and in our world. And we call upon the name of Jesus that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and restore us day by day. We commit ourselves to this.